Anasso. So just in case the, um, the talk this morning didn't give that much of a sense of urgency to your Dharma practice, I wanted to share with you just two other little morsels I just picked up. Uh, they startled me. This won't be long. It'll be very short. We'll go right to meditation. But you ready for one? The top 85 wealthiest people in the world own as much as the poorest three and a half billion people on the world. 85 and 3.5 billion. That's the distribution of wealth. Top 85, lower three and a half billion. And the top 1% of the world's population in terms of wealth own half of the world's assets. One half. So to say that we're living in unstable times, uh, where the population has doubled since 1970 and the wildlife has halved in the same period. And the last time the population doubled was from 1900 to 1970. We went from about 3.7 to, no, no, 1.7, 1.7 billion at the beginning of the 20th century, 1900. By 1970, it was about twice that, and now it's about twice that. So you can do the math, you know, and just see how we're headed. So for all of the enormous knowledge we have scientifically and of this exact world, of that world, of that physical world, the external world, uh, this extraordinary growth of scientific knowledge during the 20th century, uh, it's the worst century in the existence of Homo sapiens sapiens. And it's the most knowledgeable one. So there's something really wild, really crazy about this. Really crazy. And I really quite, I mean, I, just my, every, every molecule of my being just shouts out the same word. There's only one possible hope, and that's Dharma. Because when I w- was going to dedicate my whole life to environmental studies, Back in 19, well, from 1963 until 1970, when I encountered Dharma and then off I went. Um, actually, we knew enough back then. Uh, Paul Ehrlich, population bomb, that was already out. You know. And then the issues of the Silent Spring, anybody remember that one of our, of our generation? That was already out. You know. So what we were doing was clear. We didn't really need more knowledge. We didn't need all of the scientific knowledge we've acquired since then over the last 40 years. Uh, because the knowledge was enough 40 years ago. And even though the knowledge was there, we, that's what we did. The, the distribution of wealth uh, 40, 50 years ago, when the economy went up, everybody benefited. And now the economy has been booming, and the top 10% benefit, and everybody else gets nothing. So you can see I'm not pointing my finger here and there, but among the 10 non-virtues, now just traditional Buddhism, then we go to meditation. But I really think if we ignore these, we're just idiots. You know, this is the world, this is the only, pl- only p- planet we have. Uh, and to be Dharma idiots is an oxymoron. It really shouldn't work that way. So now I've lost my train of thought. Maybe that's okay. What's that? A ten non-virtues, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those. That's the first Dharma I ever learned when I was in Germany. I hardly learned any, hardly learned any Dharma from my Tibetan language teacher. Tibetan, he was a Tibetan Rinpoche. But all I went to him for was language. But he taught me the ten non-virtues. That's all. Nothing more. 
I would think I was a very full little teapot. I didn't think you poured anything else. I just spill all over him. But among the ten non-virtues, starting with killing and adultery and a lot and stealing, and then on into the verbal slander, abuse, lying, gossip, and then malice into the mind, malice and avarice. Among all of the ten non-virtues, it's been said historically for the whole history of Buddhism, the worst, the most destructive of all the ten non-virtues is the last one. False views. It's false views. Because that engenders everything else. False views, anything's justified. False views. The simple, oh, but that's just your belief. What's the big deal? Just beliefs. Just beliefs. Yeah, well, that's... Just beliefs that was behind the Nazi regime. Just belief that was behind genocide, ethnic cleansing, racism. Just beliefs. You know, just beliefs. These stakes are high. And to bring clarity of vision, authentic view, not dogma, not indoctrination, but clarity of view and insight. Boy, these are really desperate times. So then we go back to the practice. So we'll see. We're going to go right back to the text. I'm finished. But uh, I was surprised. I think this needs to be public knowledge. And it was there. It was so easy. I just tapped in a couple of words in Google and all this information came out. I'm not brilliant at Google. I just know how to type. It's there in plain sight, in plain sight. But it seems like very few people are connecting these global catastrophes to views. They're just pointing a finger here and there and him and that and this country and that country and that rich person and so forth. And I just think we're not digging deep enough to look, what about our belief system? What about the way we view reality? What about our priorities and values? What about our way of life? So unless we go to that level, I think we're really lost. We're, we will be witnessing the demise of human civilization. And I just don't see any way that's an exaggeration. So dharma, really. It's dharma or nothing. So, in this coming section, which is all a response to everything here in natural liberation, the six bardos is all a response to suffering and the causes of suffering. You know, it's all just within the matrix of the four, four noble truths. Reality of suffering causes. Here's liberation, here's the path. And it always boils down to the same. So where we're going in the section for today is dispelling obstacles. One of those is you can't fall asleep. So you're going to get Padmasambhava's insomnia therapy. <laughs> After looking at global crises and massive inequality of wealth and decimation of population and global warming, and just, as you just, we're just pummeling ourselves to death on the planet, at least we need to get a good night's sleep. And so that's where we'll go. And it's getting grounded and it's getting grounded. Uh, and of course, that's just the opposite of what modernity is, just the opposite of grounded, scattered, fragmented, dizzy, uh, bewildered, and so on. So for that, we come back to meditation, the shamatha. What I'd like to do is come back to balancing earth and sky. Earth and sky. Okay? So please find a very comfortable position, the most comfortable you can find. What's that? Really? Okay. I, um, anything can be done, Doug?
settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. And especially the breath in its natural rhythm, releasing, relaxing totally with every out-breath. Taking advantage of each exhalation as a time to relax more deeply in the body. To release the breath all the way through to the end and to release the wandering thought. And let your awareness descend. Descend to the earth element, corresponding to the tactile sensations of firmness and solidity, especially where your body is in contact with the ground, with your chair, with the floor. If you're sitting upright, you know where to look, where the contact is. If you're in the supine position, you have a lot of earth element from the back of your head, through the torso, down to your heels. Bring your awareness down, ground your awareness in the earth element. Like dropping the anchor in a boat, dropping it right down to the ocean floor. Feel the fluctuations of the somatic field, these fluctuations pertaining or corresponding to the respiration. See them arising from this ground. The relative stillness of the earth element and the ongoing undulations this air element, the fluctuations of the respiration.
And again, let the space of your awareness be filled with these non-conceptual fluctuations of the field, the sensations corresponding to the in and out breath. So there's no space for concepts, thoughts, or mental activities. Your awareness is filled with the space of the body, which is filled with these undulations of the field. While the space of your awareness is filled with the fluctuations corresponding to the respiration, let your awareness be still, resting in its own place, illuminating the space, but not moving out in it. Rest in the stillness of your awareness.
And then gently withdraw your awareness, the light of your awareness, away from the field of the body. Let it converge in upon itself, resting in utter simplicity and the awareness of being aware. Insofar as the sensations of the breath impinge upon your awareness, no problem. It happens. But don't deliberately give any attention there. Let your awareness rest in its own place, holding its own ground, illuminating and knowing itself. Whatever thoughts arise, let them dissolve of their own accord and maintain this flow of non-conceptual cognizance relaxed, still, and clear. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So it's such a simple truth. When your mind is in a state of balance, and there's some, some sense of contentment, you need so very little. You want so very little. Right? And if there's no, insofar as there's little or no internal balance, sense of equilibrium, of sense of meaning, then as we see from the wealthiest of the wealthiest, uh, the world is not enough. You know, the world, the whole world, if, if that 85%, no, 85 people, that really struck me. Those 85 people, they already own as much as the poorest three and a half billion. But I'm sure it's not enough. It's not enough. They want more. That's for sure. Because human beings, is, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a wonderful, I'm not speaking ironically. It's a wonderful thing. Because we human beings have an insatiable desire for happiness. And if for our vision is only material, driven by materialism, hedonic values, consumer-driven way of life, if that's all that we can see, then we'll want more. If we can't see anything else, then we'll want more of the one thing we do know. You know, Even when it's not giving any more happiness at all, after you have your first billion, and you're your 10 billion, and your 60 billion, and you see there's no happy, but you don't know anything else, because you have the blinkers on, And so, insatiable. So it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite of dharma. The opposite of dharma is, uh, that is the dharma, the theme. Oh, is in, in the, there's a, it's summed up, it's monastic ideal, but it's really more general than that. Being content. I translated it for a long time as simply being content with that was it merely uh, merely adequate? Is it enough? Is the food good enough? Is your is your room good enough? Your car? If you need a car, is it good enough? But I was recently speaking with one Tibetan. Can't quite remember who it was, but it was somebody very recent. And he said, "No, look at the word ngengme, ngengme. That's the I was translating as merely adequate, and it doesn't mean that. It means crummy, <laughs> crummy. <laughs> you know." Be satisfied with crummy. <laughs> On the one hand, be satisfied with crummy. That be satisfied, means be satisfied with that which is just crummy. <laughs> but when it comes to Dharma, it says, as Tsongkhapa says, in terms of your hearing, of receiving teachings and so forth, and then going deeper into thinking, going deeper into meditation, Chokshin Mapa have no satisfaction. Be insatiable. Insatiable. Never being able to hear enough dharma. Never being having enough time to contemplate and reflect upon dharma. And never being satisfied. Thinking, all right, now I've meditated enough. The first time that I translated for Gautam in 1990, I received teaching from him. He was my lama. He taught me dream yoga. That was the first thing. I was, it was a group, and Sangha Kondo was translating. That's the first teaching I received from him. And then not too long after that, then he was invited down to, I'll just, again, I, uh, it's vague. I mean, he's down to the Los Angeles area. Okay, so you don't know what that could possibly be. But to a Dharma center in the Los Angeles area. So I'm not pointing fingers, right? L.A. He was invited down to a Dharma center there to give teachings. And... Uh, so Gadrinovich said, Alan, I'd like you to come and translate for me. 
said, oh, happy to, happy to. And so just a weekend, as I recall, a short time. And the first, first day, day, day and a half, something like that, he took a text that I, I, again, I had no choice. I had to translate it. Translated it a long time ago. It's still not published. Um, but it was uh, on Shamatha, in one of the classic texts of Kama Chakme, of the Peyu lineage of Dzogchen, but, which is a union of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. And uh, blew my mind, really, so inspiring. And then the second half of this weekend retreat, teaching, then he taught from the same text. It was Buddhahood in the Palm of the Hand by Kamachamaramache. The whole text had never been translated. But Ramaji just plucked out two chapters on Shamatha and then Vipassana. And then I, he asked me to translate. So that was what he taught the rest of the time, you know, Shamatha, Vipassana, Dzogchen, the path, the path, path, for the seven years that I translated for him. Uh, but I recall so vividly, and since this is no, totally anonymous, I'm not appointing to any person, you can't even imagine who it would be, uh, the, the director of the Dharma Center, after the first day uh, of his teaching, he, he left a message for the second or third day. He said, I'm dharma out, so I'm dharma out. I'll never forget it. I, I'm dharma out, so I won't be coming for the rest of the teaching, but thank you for coming. I'm dharma out. Never heard that phrase before. I've never heard the verb. dharma out. One day of teaching. Wow. I still get stunned. I'm an old geezer, an old fart, but I still get like, wow. It's still like, wow. I've led a lot of retreats this year. It's been very full. Went to a beautiful center in uh, Denmark. Beautiful center. Lovely group, a large group of people came. Beautifully led out. Gorgeous, gorgeous. And I said, well, but are we, are we not displacing yogis here? Because it was quite large. We had like 80 people for the retreat. And uh, I said, are we not displacing yogis? We wouldn't want to do that. And they said, no, no, when, when the Lama isn't here and people like you occasionally we let come, the well, place is empty. And then I was later in the year, I was in a gorgeous retreat center up in Norway, out in the Norwegian woods. Cabins, 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 insulated. And they're insulating more and more, upgrading them and so forth. Again, very nice turnout, maybe 60 people for that retreat. Uh, so we filled, filled all the cabins. But I said, yeah, but when I'm not here, then who lives here? Uh, they're all empty. So the lamas have done, these are all created by lamas, you know. They've created these places. And then they're empty. What's going on? I don't get it. I really don't get it. You know, really, one man just kind of wonders, well, why, why, why bother? You know, with Islam, as they come, they offer everything, and we leave their centers empty. I don't get it. But we really like it when they come. It's awfully nice. We really love them. They give lots of blessings. That's really swell. 
Okay. 157, dispelling obstacles of dreaming. Okay, so you'll be having a hard time really gaining the, uh, gaining the ability to recognize the dream state as a dream state. Then that means there are obstacles. So you try to identify them and dispel them. And that's what Padmasambhava is here to help us do. So here there are four parts. Dispersal. And this is di- dispersion of your awareness. Kind of just getting lost, scattered, and so forth. Dispersal through waking. You wake up. Dispersal through forgetfulness, which is the opposite of mindfulness. Dispersal through confusion, where your mind just gets vague, muddled. Maybe muddled would be a better word. And then dispersal through emptiness. And you'll see that's not shunyata. You'll see what that is shortly. So, four types of dispersal. Basically, losing it. That's what dispersal, dis- dispersal means. Losing it. Okay? Here's the first one. Dispersal through waking. As, as soon as novices recognize this is a dream... Okay, they, that first moment where they become lucid, they wake up. <laughs> they wake up, and there is a dispersal of that recognition. I think we've all had that experience, yeah? You enter in lucidity, wow, and then you wake up. So it's very short lucidity. So, and so, you know, my, my response, I've said it so many times, relaxation, stability, vividness, first thing is relax. Huh? So dispel that, so to, get over, to overcome that kind of excitement, Maintain your attention at the level of your heart, of the heart and below. Focus and focus your mind on a black bindu. Again, bindu just means an orb, like an orb of light. On a black bindu the size of a pea called the syllable of darkness on the soles of both feet. And that will dispel it. Okay? That actually works. I've taught this for a long time, and quite a number of people practice it. Quite a few people say, oh, that really worked, that issue a little... Visually, a little black pearl of light, black light, on the soles of the feet. You know the theme that, number one, he says, focus at the level of the heart or below, and below. So, as I mentioned before, a little bit of repetition. When you're in the waking state, then the prana is associated with the mind, most explicitly related to the mind. They converge up here. So it's no wonder we say, oh, my thoughts, my thoughts, my thoughts. You know, we're, actually, the energy is up there. And so you don't, when you're trying to fall asleep, when you're trying to go into meditation, go deep into meditation, you don't want that energy going into your head. Right? So, but if you're having a hard time falling asleep, generally speaking, from what I know of sleep specialists, and I'm absolutely not one, but generally speaking, when you're falling asleep, you go from the waking state, and then you'll do a nosedive down into stage four non-REM sleep, dreamless sleep. And then statistically, then after about 90 minutes or so from the time you fall asleep, then you start your first dream cycle and you have five to seven in a night. That's kind of statistical average, so I've been told. Um, But that means that the energy then, the energies related to the mind, they need to come from this forehead chakra right here in the center, I mean frontal cortex right there. Uh, But of course the the channel would be right in the interior, deep deep inside the brain. So I don't know. Amy, what would that be? Would that be hippocampus, amygdala area, right in, the, in, right in the forehead, but pretty much right along the axis? Can you... Corpus, corpus callosum? If it's low enough. Yeah. Well, and again, it, it doesn't really make any sense to try to find correlations because there aren't any. Between, among the nadis and chakras, you, you, there aren't any correlations. But just in terms of sheer location. But in any case, that's what it stated. So you, you see where I'm going, and I'll say it very quickly. 
So that's where the energies are in the first-person physiology, which does not map onto the brain, nervousness, and so forth. <coughs> it's another reality arising relative to another system of measurement. The neuroscientists are doing fantastic work using their systems of measurement. Brilliant work, excellent work. Uh, but which is almost unknown to all of modern science is that there actually is another perspective, and that's a contemplative perspective. And then you don't get the amygdala, hippocampus, frontal cortex, brainstem, and all of that. You don't get glial cells or neurons or dendrites or synapses. You get chakras and nadis and bindus, you know, and that's the reality from that perspective that arises to meet you from that perspective. So again, to finish the thought, when you're, when you're falling asleep, what you want to do is bring those energies down, not to the throat chakra, because you need to fall deep asleep first. You need to go into non-REM sleep, not without rapid eye movement. So you want to drop that down to the heart chakra, right? And so because that's where the energies converge when you go into deep dreamless sleep, when you faint, when you go comatose, when you have general anesthesia, when you achieve shamatha, and when you die. They all migrate to the same place, right? And so if you're having a hard time falling asleep, well, that means energetically, your energy is still buzzing around in your head, right? So you, want, you don't want to bring them down to the, to the throat because it needs to, you have to go into deep sleep first. So bring them down to the, to the heart chakra or below, because there are no, below is just kind of below. So you'll at least, you know, you'll be down in the right area. You want to get out of the head. And frankly, if you're having a lot of agitation, a lot of fizz, a lot of uh, brightness, all of that, sensitivity, then frankly, the lower the better. So hence, uh, black orb of light in the soles of the feet. Okay, that's opposite end from the, from the head. That's pretty straightforward. So focus your mind on the black bindu the size of a pea called the syllable of darkness on the soles of both feet. That will dispel it. So try it. Try it. Uh, no side effects. You won't develop moles on the soles of your feet. You don't need to worry about that. It should be, it should be okay. All right. And then we have dispersal through forgetfulness. This entails apprehending the dream state. And again, bear in mind, forgetfulness is the antonym of mindfulness. Mindfulness, okay? Forgetfulness, mindfulness, opposite. So, because mindfulness means bearing in mind, and forgetting means not. Okay. So this entails apprehending the dream state, but immediately becoming confused and letting the dream go on as usual. Okay? So I spoke of these two independent variables, right? On the one hand, you have the independent variable of the continuity of the dream, but you have the other independent variable of the continuity of lucidity, of maintaining a flow of cognizance not falling into non-lucidity. And so you could, you could, so there you are, so you have both. When you, be, when you first become lucid, then you, you have the dream and you have the awareness that it, that it is a dream, so you have the dream and lucidity. But then if you're just, you know, just don't have much mindfulness, you can't bear it in mind, you can't sustain that flow of cognizance, then the cognizance will just fall right back into unknowing and then immediately into confusion which means you'll go right back into a non-lucid dream, but the dream will continue. So you just fall back into an ordinary dream, non-lucid dream. So that's one way of losing it, right? And that's what he's referring to here, just for kind of the parallel point, and that it is possible, and a number of you have actually reported this to me, that you um, become lucid in the dream, and then one person in particular, I remember, said, and then he closed his eyes. He thought, I mean, with a nice motivation, I think I'll meditate. And then he closed his eyes. Well, of course, in a matter of just a couple of seconds, the whole dream vanishes. And then you're not practicing lucid dreaming anymore. But if you do maintain the flow of cognizance, now you're practicing lucid dreamless sleep. 
which has its own advantages, but that's coming later. So this is approaching, and I've mentioned this a number of times now, there, as there are two, two approaches to emptiness. That is, you may go right to, by way of ontological analysis, you may be probing right into the empty nature, the emptiness of inherent nature of phenomena. And by the power of that realization, as you come out, then you may have a, a deep understanding, realization, insight into the nature of dependent origination, pratita samupada. So there's one door, right? Through the door of emptiness and coming out the door of dependent origination, right? That's a possibility. And the other possibility is that you're really, really attending very closely, investigating the nature of phenomena as phenomena, not seeking out their emptiness, but seeking how this the whole theme of interdependence, which scientists do a lot, you know, brilliantly, and contemplatives do as well in different ways, of course. But as you really fathom the nature of interdependence, of just impermanence itself, it's said for the very gifted, if you simply realize the impermanence of phenomena, that will be enough to catapult you into realization of emptiness. Because if phenomena were not impermanent, if, 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 that is, if phenomena were inherently existent, by implication, it's not obvious, but if you're very sharp it will be, if phenomena were inherently existent, they would be immutable. They wouldn't change. Which means then there would be no cause and interaction of any kind. You just have these discrete little ball bearings, immutable ball bearings, frozen. Because they wouldn't even move around in space. And you know why? Because location is a quality of a ball bearing. But if it's inherently existent, its location is one of its inherent qualities, which means it wouldn't change. Everything would be freeze-dried. Oh, yeah. That would be the universe if it were inherently existent. So, so fascinating. Here's a little parallel. So fascinating. In quantum cosmology, I mean, I really, I, I stand in awe of this theory. It's amazing. It's not very widely accepted, but, but it is presented by some of the most brilliant minds in theoretical physics. John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, and others. So, even though it's not widely accepted, it certainly came from extraordinary sources. But they, you might recall that without introducing the observer-participant, without a, who then, remember it, who then demarcates between object and subject, without that, the universe doesn't evolve. Time is frozen. That's how they say it. It's frozen time. There's no evolution. There's no change. That you need the observer coming in and then bifurcating subject and object, and then also, not only subject, object like space, you're over there, I'm over here, but also time. Because <coughs> how do we have, how is there any sense of future and past? By somebody saying or designating now. And as soon as you say now, then, oh, well, there, there's what comes after now, and there's what preceded now, and now you have the three times. But now isn't there, it's not in the equations, it's not inherent. It's, I mean, it's amazing, they did this with physics that now is not objectively real, and therefore there's no relative past and future without there being a now. There is no three times. It's quite interesting. So the two doors to it, and so likewise, in this dream yoga practice, you see, you see where it goes right after you? I mean, everybody can peek ahead in the book. Um, he's coming in by way of phenomena in terms of dream yoga coming in by way of, first of all, daytime phenomena. Right? We've already done daytime dream yoga. 
the illusory nature of phenomena, illusory nature of phenomena, dreamlike. No, no dream is this dream coming in that door and then following right through that door. Phenomena, phenomena, from waking phenomena to dream phenomena and proceeding through that avenue by way of dependent origination, by way of relative truth, by way of dependent origination. And then we'll see where he goes from there is into lucid, dreamless sleep to realize a clear light. That's what comes probably tomorrow if we finish, if I keep on moving here. So it's quite brilliant. Quite brilliant. So, but now we have this forgetfulness. So that means you've, between those two independent variables of the dream and the lucidity or the cognizance of it being a dream, you lose one, and that is you lose your cognizance, you lose the lucidity. So what happens if you do that? You've forgotten, you've not, you're not bearing in mind that it, it is a dream. You forget that it is a dream, which means then you slip into a normal, non-lucid dream. To dispel that, train in the illusory body during the day. Okay? So once again, there's something you can do, you know, and that's it. And accustom yourself to envisioning the dream state. In other words, imagining throughout the course of the day, imagining that it is a dream. Imagining that. So that prepares you for it. And you can see why. Because the habits of the day carry over into the habits of the night for everything. For whatever you desire, whatever you value, whatever you're attending to in the waking state, that's not going to completely predetermine your dreams, because dreams are really quite unpredictable. Seeds, those latent, uh, those habitual propensities, they're coming from a very, very big cauldron so to speak, a very big storehouse from, I mean, who knows what the seeds could be, where they could be coming from. It could be a, a habitual propensity, a karmic seed or what have you, from 10 years ago, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, depending on how, how old you are. Or in principle, and it does happen, um, the seed could come from a past life. That's also possible. But in terms of those habitual propensities, how do we say, that are influencing, especially the, the dreams early in the night. This I also learned from Stephen LaBerge. It's a wonder, been a wonderful friendship. Um, what he's reported from modern science. I think it's there. Maybe it's, I, sometimes I blend the two. Maybe it's dream yoga. I've received, again, multiple teachings. Uh, but one of the two, a good source anyway. There's good reason to believe that if you have five to seven cycles of dreams per night, the dreams more towards the earlier part of the night, like your first, second, third dream, that kind of thing, those dreams more likely, generally speaking, more likely those dreams in the earlier part of the night will be catalyzed by imprints from the preceding day. So you get shouted at you by your boss during the daytime, and at night your boss is shouting at you, or somebody else is shouting at you, or you're shouting at your boss, or something that somehow is catalyzed by the unpleasantness of the day, of the day some, some experience in the day, pleasant or unpleasant, right? But it said as you go towards the end of the night, during especially those last two hours, which makes me think this comes from Stephen LaBerge and the research of his fellow scientists, uh, when you come to that last couple of hours of your normal dreaming cycle, so if you normally wake up, at this, you know, if, you've, if you've slept out, you've finished sleeping, you've totally slept as much as you need by 6 o'clock, then it would be from four to six, uh, that you'll have your final dream cycle. Right? And it's said that um, the most significant dreams, most meaningful dreams, will likely, statistically speaking, be arising during that period. And that the, 
the karmic imprints, the seeds, habitual propensities that are catalyzed, that give rise to the drama, the scene, the dreamscape, and all of that, will likely be from a, de- uh, from a deeper source and not just, you know, what happened yesterday. So if, if, if one is going to have a very meaningful dream, ripe, very pregnant with important symbolic meaning, or maybe even a precognitive dream, that can also happen, and I won't go into that right now, or a remote viewing kind of dream, having a dream that some loved one far away is going through something, and then you wake up and you find out, oh, that happened. I mean, that's happened so many times that to say it, write it off as coincidence doesn't strike me as terribly reasonable. But if one is going to have a very meaningful dream of any of those kinds, then probably during that final phase, when there's been enough of a buffer zone of, from the preceding day, all the influence of the preceding day, they probably played themselves out in the first, second, third, fourth dream, kind of worked themselves out. And then you keep on having amnesia, most people do, from one dream to the next. Most people, when they're having their third dream, they don't remember the second dream. When they have the fifth dream, they don't remember the fourth dream. So it just, this characterizes life in samsara, just an ongoing flow of amnesia. Although I think we ought to, all would have been enlightened a long time ago. But we learn and we never forget. You know? uh, but you, what the, the, the gist of this is that you have a lot of buffer zones, a lot of, a lot of masking. Masking is a nice word from psychology. Uh, so that your previous experience are masked, masked, masked three or four or five times. So by the time you finally get to the last two hours of your sleep, uh, that what's coming up there may become maybe catalyzed, triggered by more older memories, deeper memories, and perhaps more significant ones. So, so to dispel that training, the illusory body during the day, and accustom yourself to envisioning the dream state, both of those during the daytime. Then, as you are about to go to sleep, so now we're back to prospective memory, right? Do so with the yearning. Remember to do this. Remember to yearn for something in the future. And that is, may I know the dream state as the dream state and not become confused. Or I think nowadays I probably would say muddled. Muddled. Probably a good word. Um, So there it is. Again, it's this, it's, it's pempa, the power of resolve, of anticipation for what's coming. And also cultivate mindfulness thinking. Also, when I am apprehending the dream state, may I, when I am apprehending it, may I not become muddled, and that will dispel it. So the first one is, may I know the dream state as a dream state and not become, and the other one is, when I'm already apprehending it, may I not become muddled. So again, this strong power of, of resolve, of anticipation, prospective memory, uh, prospective memory then antidoting the forgetfulness that may come in the future. So it makes really good sense. And then we have dispersal through muddledness or confusion. If your dreams are solely deceptive appearances of detrimental habitual propensities, deceptive means misleading, and nowadays I call them delusive because they lead you, they invite you to become deluded. So if your dreams are solely delusive appearances of, of detrimental habitual propensities, your awareness becomes diffused, flaky, spaced out, muddled, and you never recognize the dream state at all. You're just spacey, you know, just vague. That's a nice another word, vague, bleary-eyed. Therefore, during the daytime, power, powerfully envision dreaming and strongly emphasize the illusory body, 
So again, bring that sharpness in. Doing the way when you really can control your mind, you can work with it. And then again, the same same themes. You see, it's same 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 antidote sometimes for different or related uh, obstacles in the practice. So once again, imagine dreaming, powerfully imagine dreaming. And then again, powerfully emphasize your visualization of the illusory body. And then again, to do all that you can to purify obscurations. Apply yourself to purifying obscurations, practicing fulfillment and confession. So these are some classic practices. Confession, the four remedial powers, Vajrasattvas, for example. Perform the Ganachakra offering, that's a tzok, the tzok, tzok offering. And by forcefully practicing pranayama with the vital energies and continuing in, in all of this, this problem will be dispelled. Okay? There's a wide variety of pranayama techniques. So I think the only one I've taught here, I don't think I even taught the gentle vas breathing this time. I don't think so. I've taught it many times. But I, I did teach weeks ago, it seems like ancient history now, just the ninefold breathing. So that would be good. Dispel the res- residual air, the old dead air. Okay? That would be good. For the, for the time being, I think that's enough. So, and now something you're all familiar with, dispersal, that is your mind becomes scattered, right, through insomnia. Can't fall asleep. So if sleep is dispersed due to powerful anticipation, that is, you're such an eager beaver, you're so, so enthusiastic you know, and trying really hard, powerful anticipation, looking forward to it, and you become diffused as your consciousness simply does not go to sleep. You know that it's scattered. Scattered is diffused. Then counteract this by imagining a black bindu in the center of your heart. Okay? That sounds kind of gnarly. But black is simply so it doesn't arouse more vividness. You don't, if, you're, if you're suffering from insomnia because your mind is too bright, it's just, it's just that, it's bright, it's sharp, it's clear, um, then that's not going to help to visualize an incandescent, radiant, white orb of light at your heart. That's just going to keep you awake. Right? So black in the center of your heart. Well, visualizing anything in the center of your heart, and of course it's your heart chakra, not the heart organ. Visualizing anything in your heart chakra is, I'm going to say it all over again for the maybe fifth time, it's going to draw prana into it. Wherever you visualize, if you, if you, visualize, if you visualize black windows on the tip of your finger, fingers, that's going to draw prana into the tips of your fingers. And people who work in biofeedback know that when you do that, it opens the capillaries in the little tiny, well, it opens the capillaries in the tips of your fingers, and it will increase the temperature. Because there's more, more, more blood flow. And that's been known for a long time. And so biofeedback works on that principle. Direct your attention here, direct your attention there. With whether or not you know anything about prana, whether you believe in prana, I think most of us, I think we all believe in capillaries and blood flow, and lo and behold, that's what happens. Direct your attention, and capillaries open, blood flows, and then you start feeling warmer. Okay? So, if that's the case, then, and it clearly is from biofeedback, I mean, it's pretty well established. I mean, it's a measurable kind of thing. Does your temperature go up or not? Let alone TUMO, where it's going off the charts. Uh, and of course, you're focusing there right into this massive energy channel, and energy chakra, the navel chakra. Big, that's a nuclear power plant down there. Bring energy into that one. You'll, you'll know about it. Hmm. But if you're bringing energy into the heart chakra and you'd like to do so in order to fall asleep, 
and not in order to achieve shamatha or do some state of completion practice, which you could do if you know how, uh, then you want to bring it in, again, the same place that the energies go when you fall deep asleep, but you want to bring it in not with brightness, but rather so you can fall asleep. And so hence, the black light. Black light. You are drawing energy in, but you're not bringing in kind of the high-frequency energies of brightness, vividness, and so forth. I'll just continue. So, hopefully all questions. I know we've basically had no time for question and answer, but I also made a pledge that I finished the material. And I think I'm not dawdling too much, so I'm doing my best. And hopefully Padmasambhava will answer questions. Or... If Padmasambhava doesn't answer them in the text, and they don't get answered in our little 15-minute meetings, then do what Tenzin Palmo did. I told you the story, yeah? Oh, okay. I'll tell you a Tenzin Palmo story. Uh, it was 1981, during the summer. This was the second time I went, I went to India. We returned in India in 1980. I was there in India and Sri Lanka for close to two years. And I was only in semi-retreat, right in the middle of monsoon, August 1981, and we're just a couple of friends of mine. One had a jeep. We're just getting so soggy. I mean, the the, the monsoons in in, in Dharamsala are really heavy. Everything molds. Stand stand still, you'll, you'll turn green. <laughs> and so, so this friend of mine with a jeep, she said, "Why don't we go over the Rotong Pass?" Which is the thir- I just checked. It's a 13,000 foot pass up above Manali. Why don't we go over that pass? And on the far the far side is Lahul Spiti. It's, it's like Tibet. It's really like Tibet. And the people there speak a dialect of Tibetan. There are Indians there as well, but it's, it's, it's old. It used to be part of Tibet. And so, and you go over that 13,000-foot pass. Well, you just, the monsoon clouds are maybe at 10,000 feet. So they come, and then they bump, and they, they don't go further north. So you just go over the pass, and you're out of the monsoon. So we thought that was a good idea. So we hopped in the jeep, three or four of us, drove, over the, drove off to Manali, then over the pass, and suddenly we're in like Tibet. It was just incredibly beautiful. And I'd never met Tenzin Palma, but we had some connections, and we learned where she was. And she was preparing for her, first, for her three-year retreat. And she found her cave, her five-star cave. It was, at that point, it was the nicest cave I've ever seen in my life. We found her, and, and we knew she wasn't in retreat yet, so it would be okay if we dropped in. So I think it was three of us, four of us, whatever. We hiked up to her cave at about 5,000 meters, way up there. And it's southern exposure, in the, of course, inside of the mountain, and it was a cave that had been obviously used for generations because it was already partitioned. It was called the Rungkang, which is where you do your biological stuff. Uh, you may have, a little, may have a little potty in there or whatever, but you have your food. Your biological stuff is there. You have a wall, and then you have your Dukang. Then you have a meditation room. And then you, just, you sleep and you meditate there. And then biological stuff you do over there, brushing teeth, washing pots, and all the mundane stuff. So kind of mundane and super mundane. Well, she had a partition. The front of the cave was walled, it had a window, it had a, a, a potbelly stove, wood-burning stove with a chimney. This is one nice cave. I mean, this is really a nice cave. And so when we dropped in her, she was um, just collecting stores for three years. Or at least, no, for one year. I think they could, after a year. But she was collecting her lentils and her rice and wood and kerosene and all that kind of stuff. And so we dropped in on her. And a delightful encounter. I've met her since then a number of times, but that was the first one. Delightful. And uh, this was like August, and she was going into retreat just a couple of months after that. And she commented that she, at this, at 5,000 meters, she'd be snowed in, the snow like, like a meter and a half high. She would not get out from November to May. She'd be snowed in. You know, uh, if she breaks a leg, have appendicitis, well, 
That's the breaks. We'll, we'll get to you in May. You know, but nobody's coming up. Nobody's going down. No snowshoes, no up and down. You're there. <coughs> and so I asked her, um, what if you have some crisis in your meditation? Or some big question, some burning question, like, like Kim's burning question. But it's January, and you're by yourself. What do you do? Because she was already, of course, she was already a seasoned meditator. She was not going up there as a novice by any means. And her answer was very simple. Uh, when she snowed in from November to May, she said, oh, well, I know what I'll do. I'll pray to my lama, and then I'll get the answer. That's simple. So, if you have questions that um, I don't get to, pray to your lama, get the answer. And don't look for the lama, don't look for the lama or the guru or the Buddha outside yourself. <laughs> Maybe that's my secret agenda by not giving you any chance to, not even written. You see how I put a cork in that one? <laughs> I'm a sneaky bugger. <laughs> Don't look for answers outside yourself. Just listen to the teachings and see what happens. So if sleep is dispersed. we finished that one yet? Okay. Oh, then, well, okay, I'm just going to read it. If sleep is dispersed due to powerful anticipation and you become diffused, as your consciousness simply does not go to sleep, counteract this by imagining a black bindu in the center of your heart. Bring forth the anticipation without force. And just for an instant. So just bring it up, and then release it. And by releasing your awareness without meditating on sleep, that is, without focusing on sleep, without wishing to sleep, without being impatient, I'm not falling asleep, when I'm, how can I try harder to fall asleep? Don't go there. Without meditating on sleep, don't take sleep as an object. It was, don't think about sleeping. Right? That'll keep you awake for sure. So without meditating on sleep, you will fall asleep and apprehend the dream state. So there's Padmasambhava's. We should patent that. Sell it. Padmasambhavas, the Buddha's insomnia treatment. And then give, give them sugar tablets. Nice sugar tablets. Oh, yeah. And then there's dispersal through indolence. Being a laser, lazy bugger. That's what that means. Indolence. Being a flake. First, due to disillusionment with samsara and a spirit of emergence. So you see, there are two parts there. Disillusionment, a number of you, I think, already have that to some degree, varying degrees, is as you're looking around, you say, okay, wh where's the part that I really want? As you're looking around outside of you, okay, who, what, where, when is going to make me really happy, give me satisfaction, sense of fulfillment, meaning that's really good, that's really worth totally plunging ahead and finding my happiness there. I think for a number of you, listening by podcast and, li and being here, have kind of at least gotten somewhat disillusioned with samsara. That uh, it hasn't worked out thus far, so maybe it's not going to work out if we continue with the same thing. So that's disillusionment. Uh, so as I've mentioned before, Sartre had a good deal of disillusionment, so did Camus, so did many other people. So do depressed people, a lot of depressed people have really given up on samsara, except for Prozac or the other you know, antidepressants, some just holding a little lifeline so it's not enough. Right? Due to disillusionment and a spirit of emergence. That's a very literal translation. 
tomb, and I, gave, I said this before again, so very briefly, it's, re, it's often translated as renunciation. But frankly, renunciation is disillusionment with samsara. I renounce samsara. No more from me. Hopeless. I don't want to go there. That's renunciation. That's disillusionment with samsara. But Satra, as far as I know, did not have nyenjung. He did not have a spirit of emergence. As far as I know, and I do, certainly don't mean to judge him, but I've read him and I didn't see any indication that he has some notion of nirvana, some notion of liberation. I, I don't think so. If he did, he, had a, he hid it very well. It's more just samsara sucks totally. Right? So there has to be some vision. If you're going to have direction away from samsara, it has to be to something. Otherwise, you're going nowhere. Right? It's just not. You're going into oblivion, nihilism. I think it's called suicide. And so the spirit of emergence is having some vision, which I think our world so desperately needs for everything I've said today, some vision of the good life, of liberation, of awakening, of genuine happiness. Just Socratic eudaimonia would be a great big step in the right direction. Socratic, I mean, again, anybody listening on podcast, go online, just check out Socrates, eudaimonia, look for the PDF that comes up. It's brilliant. I mean, it's so good and it's ours, that is for us Eurocentric people. We're not stepping outside of our civilization. It's brilliant. It's really, really good. It's dharma, you know. Uh, but here we are in the 21st century. We see what's happening. We've completely forgotten the wisdom of our own civilization. Socrates, he's one of our guys. You know, we don't have to travel east to become a counterculture. We have to kind of know our own civilization. But um, we have forgotten so much. So first, due to disillusionment and a spirit of renunciation, moving away from samsara, moving towards liberation, you may do a little practice in retreat and so on. So you may be inspired, some teacher comes through, or you read a book, or you receive an empowerment, or what have you, and you may develop some disillusionment, especially if you just had a breakup with your girlfriend or boyfriend, or lost your job, or you see some really charismatic lama or something, and you have some direction, oh, that would be good, I'd like to be more like him or her. So you may do a bit of retreat, go off and do a Vajrasattva retreat or Lama retreat or whatever, and so on. You may also apprehend the dream state. Maybe you get some dream yoga teachings, and then you have some lucid dreams. All this is possible. But afterwards, as you have not severed your craving for sensual gratification, a.k.a. hedonic pleasure, all the bounties of samsara, you become caught up in idle amusements. The t- number of times that has happened is countless. Where people start up, and I've heard it so many times myself. You know, I've been teaching what thirty-seven years, something like that, going on thirty-eight. How many times people get really juiced up and they practice for a year or two and then just fizzle out? And you look at the lifestyle and it's like, and everything they're doing—priorities, way of life, activities, the way they spend their money, they spend their free time, and so forth. There's not even a fragrance, nothing. Total immersion, total amnesia. You know, that at one point they thought Dharma was really important. Because now it's all this mundane activity, this job, this career, this acquisition, this relationship, this new house, this, this, this. Completely fills the attention. So total forgetfulness. So you become caught up in idle amusements, or in the modern world, it became just two things work and entertainment. Work and entertainment. That pretty much sums it up. Two ways to agitate your mind. So with a weak disposition, you don't really have a strong core. 
go and, and again, you go, you go along with the flow. You go along with what people around you think is valuable. And there aren't many places on the planet where the people around you have you know, powerful resolve, total dedication to Dharma. Those communities are pretty small. So if you're hanging out with people who have no interest in Dharma, then most likely you can become like them. I was told that when I was in graduate school at Stanford by my mentor. Very good comparative scholar. And uh, he said, Alan, you want to be careful about the people you associate with because you will become like them. Shortly after that, I left Stanford. <laughs> Went off for six months up in, the, up in the wilderness, you know, just total solitude. Came back, held my breath, finished my, my dissertation in a year and a half, and gone. So, with a weak disposition, you become completely ordinary. And out of indolence, you wreck your spiritual practice. Because you didn't ever value it. You didn't, you didn't recognize. It's kind of like that wonderful statement of ancient mythology or history, whichever you think of the... the I've said it before, I think, in this retreat. The ancient India, they, 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 uh, they go out, out into the great ocean in search of wish-fulfilling gem. Wish-fulfilling gem. And they might spend months or years. I don't know how they would tr- troll. Is that the word, troll? Troll? I don't know how they'd troll for a wish-fulfilling gem. I don't know what kind of net you'd put down. But they'd go out looking. I don't know, I don't know how you'd look, frankly. But they say they would go out looking for a wish-fulfilling gem out in the great ocean. And a wish-fulfilling gem is being, again, according to the classic teachings on this, if you get it and you polish it and you treat it and then you make supplications to it with reverence and respect, then whatever, it sounds like something left over by some UFO. You know, they just dropped off goodies. Like, good luck. And then they're off to the next galaxy. It sounds kind of like that because it's an entity, it's a gem. And you simply direct your thoughts to it. You direct your thoughts to it. And then what, whatever mundane desire, any hedonic desire, you name it, that you wish for, it will produce it. You can't wish for shamatha or vipassana or anything on the path, but any mundane, it delivers the goods. You know? And so, so the, the parable, the Tibetan lamas that I've heard, they, they've told me this story, is it's like you've spent years, years, years looking for this wish-fulfilling gem, and you finally find one. And then you actually and you, and you, you confirm it. You, know, you polish it, you put offerings, you make supplications, and wham, you know, there it is. And you say, wow, I found one. It's, it, what, the analogy here is a fully endowed, precious human rebirth. More precious, Shantideva. Yishin no lechak, superior to a wish-fulfilling jewel, this life that we have right now. And, it, it's like, and so the, the metaphor goes, the parable is, wow, I've got a wish, I, what I was always looking for, I've been tr- sailing the high seas for so many years, and I finally found one. Man, oh man, i got a wish-fulfilling gem. Wow, there it is. Throw it over your shoulder and say, I hope I find another one. So that's the analogy the Lamas give for encountering the extremely rare and precious human rebirth with all the opportunities for practicing Dharma and then praying and then squandering it and praying, I hope I get another one. Oh, Buddha's bless me, I can get another one in the future. I have to tell you my wish-fulfilling gem joke. It's getting a bit heavy. I really like this one. <laughs>
Okay, so you have to laugh. At least a polite chuckle. So three, three guys are stranded on a desert island. And lo and behold, a little, a little vase floats ashore. And, they, and it's, it's corked. And they open it up, and a genie comes out. Instead of a wish of a villain, it's a genie. And the genie turns to them and says, ah, you've, you've liberated me. Well, I'll give each of you one wish. That's be a mundane wish. I'll give you one wish, whatever you like, I'll deliver it. Why not believe him? What do you have to lose? So the first guy says, well, then I'd like to own my own casino, and I'd like to have lots of women, I'd like to have fast cars and tons of money. That's what I'd really, really like. And then, gone. And there he is, you know. Reno, Reno or Las Vegas. He's, but he's gone. You know? Poof, he's gone. So his two, the two companions like, wow, something looked like it worked. So the second guy, he puts on his thinking cap really quickly and said, well, okay, this is serious. Okay, okay, I want a great big ranch in Montana. I want lots and lots of horses and, and again women and lots and lots of money. Uh, I say women, make sure women. And, yeah, that's what I want. Big ranch in Montana. Poof. He's gone. And the third guy, sitting there on this desert island all by himself, a bit downcast, and he said, oh, gosh, I wish my two friends were here. you enjoy it too. <laughs> so, so with a weak disposition you become completely ordinary and out of indolence you wreck your spiritual practice. Having no pure vision of any of the dharmas and practices pretend, performed by others, so you're not maintaining a pure vision of anybody else because you've fallen into complete mundane rut yourself, then you judge them by your own standards and, you, and your mind slips into ruminating. I've done that too and I'm like this now, so others are just like me. In other words, I totally screwed up on my practice. I haven't gotten anywhere. And you're doing the same kind of practice that I was. And you don't seem so special to me. So I guess really Dharma doesn't work. So you're seeing it, you know, reality relative to your own perspective. Very easy to do. So for that, if you're having this dispersal through indolence, just getting lazy, flaky, losing vision, losing inspiration. For that, meditate on the difficulty of, of obtaining a human life of leisure and endowment. So, what I just mentioned. And on death and impermanence, with its three points. Death can come at any time. It doesn't matter who you are, what your health is. Death is absolutely in inevitable. And the third point is when you're facing death, there's only one thing of value, and that's dharma. So that's a good meditation, very powerful, very motivating, even if you're not living in the 21st century. It is most important that you meditate on the faults of samsara and mentally renounce this life. And what that, of course, means is all the attachments of this life. By applying yourself to solitary, single-pointed practice in retreat and so on, 
your earlier experiment, experiential realization will be restored and you will again apprehend the dream state. So it's a very lovely way of saying, get your act together. You know, disengage from people who are just drawing you down right back into their own ruts, into samsara, mundane pursuits, hope, fear, the eight mundane concerns. You need to disengage. That's why there are monasteries, retreat centers, dharma centers, and so forth, to try to find either be in solitude or be with people who really share a vision of dharma. Um, that's one of our great freedoms. And none of us here, I'm quite sure this is true for people listening by podcast as well, happily, joyfully, magnificently, none of us are serfs. Serfs, that is, belonging to the land, or slaves belonging to some person. And so, for much of history, many people were. You couldn't leave. You know. And many people nowadays, I've heard the sex-slave treatment, treatment is, is booming these days. And many people are absolutely tied to location for economic reasons. So really hardly any mobility laterally or vertically. They're stuck. That's it, right? So many people, that probably that three and a half billion whose combined assets equal that of the 85 top people, they're probably pretty much that way. Not much opportunity. Right? But for those of us who have the leisure to listen to this teaching and to engage in the practices, we're not like that. And so it's one of our greatest freedoms, greatest freedoms, that we're not owned by a person, nor are we owned by land, that if we find our circumstances unconducive to dharma, eroding, chipping away to the point that maybe it vanishes. We don't have to stay. We can actually choose. We have the freedom to choose other people to associate with, other places to live. And that is our freedom. Again, we don't have a freedom unless we recognize it. Right? And that provides it with choices that perhaps we forgot we have. So again, the last sentence here, by applying yourself to solitary, single-pointed practice, not muddling up or mixing up your practice with eight mundane concerns and so forth, in retreat and so on. So whether in solitary retreat, with, with a collective retreat, having spiritual friends can be a great blessing. Then your earlier experiential realization will be restored. So it's not simply lost, but you need to find it again. Again, like I've often commented, like, um, like being fluent in a language and then, not become, and then losing the fluency. Well, it's not that hard to get back, but you need to, need to get into an environment where there are people speaking it, and then you'll learn it quickly again. And so do that, and you will again apprehend the dream state. So we'll finish here. So on page 160, if reverence for the, for, the, for the guru is absent, if you have no reverence for the guru, the dream state will not be apprehended. Well, of course, the truth is that many people practice lucid dreaming with no dharma, with no guru, nor nothing, and they do have lucid dreams. That's just true, right? So you can't refute what is obviously true. But then having known quite a number of people in different contexts uh, who have very, very good dream recall and have frequent lucid dreams, if that's all they have going for them, it's a gift like piano or math or cooking. Some people are gifted for lucid dreams. You know? um, but the mere fact that you're having a lot, lot, lot of lucid dreams, if that's all you have, from my observation, and you know I'm not... You can't even imagine, I don't even have a, a person in mind, I'm speaking generally. If that's your only ability in this context, is you're really good at lucid dreaming, I haven't seen any, I have not seen any evidence that has, that has any significant impact on your life, your values, your worldview, or anything else. It's just like hockey. I have nothing against hockey either. 
but I don't think it really changes your worldview all that much. So you're gifted at hockey, cool. And some people are gifted at lucid dreaming. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about dream yoga, that your dream state will not be apprehended in this incredibly transformative, rich, and profound practice of dream yoga. If your tantric pledges have degenerated, if you've broken your samaya, it will not be apprehended. If there is little familiarization, you don't really go into it, stick with it, then it will not be apprehended. And if the critical points of the practical instructions are absent, if you don't know them, you've forgotten, it will not be apprehended. So know how to remedy those problems. The remedies are kind of built into the diagnosis itself. It is said that by training in the transitional process of dreaming, this bardo, since the transitional process of ultimate reality, and I've referred to it briefly, this is the one that comes right after the clear light of death and just before the intermediate state or transitional process of becoming, which is the classic bardo, intermediate state. There's a brief one where these archetypal, peaceful, and wrathful deities appear, which you either do or do not recognize as pure expressions of or creative expressions of your own rikpa. If you do, you're liberated. If you don't, you just pass on through. So since the transitional process of ultimate reality and of becoming, and the transitional process of becoming is the bardo-bardo, the intermediate state, since these are both like the dream state, they have a very dreamlike quality to them, those transitional processes will be apprehended. So he just cut to the core. Why do this if you're a Tibetan Buddhist following this path? Well, doing this then is preparing you very, very well for becoming liberated in the transitional process of ultimate reality, of Dhammata, and the transitional process of becoming, either one. One by way of Sambhogakaya, the transitional process of ultimate reality by way of Sambhogakaya, and then your way to liberation in the bardo, the intermediate state, transitional process of, be of becoming is by way of Nirmanakaya. Nirmanakaya, pure land, Buddha field, which has already been explained. Moreover, it is said that if the dream state is apprehended seven times, the transitional process following death will be recognized. So you've developed some habit there. These are the instructions on the transitional process of dreaming called the natural liberation of confusion, samaya. That's that. Enjoy your dinner, sleep well, see you in the morning.